Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're very happy to see all of you here this evening. Uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of things going on in Baltimore, and we're glad that you chose to be here with us. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Dale Russikoff to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library in the Poe Room. Um, Dale's book. <laughs> The prize is about the Newark public school system and the $100 million gift from Mark Zuckerberg in 2010 that was meant to transform those schools. Dale chronicles what happened when Zuckerberg's money and the plans of the mayor, um, Cory Booker, now the senator, and the governor uh, collided with the city's seasoned education players who were bent on protecting their system, the prize. Uh, and this prize for generations had enriched seemingly everyone except for the students. In his New York Times book review, Alex Kotlowitz wrote, and I'm, I'll quote, the prize may well be one of the most important books on education to come along in years. I don't think there's greater compliment than that. Um, Dale Russikoff spent 28 years as a reporter for the Washington Post, covering politics, education, social policy, and other topics. From 1994 to 2008, she served in the Post's New York Bureau, which included um, covering the New York City metropolitan area and Newark. So please join me in welcoming Dale Russikoff. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be at this library. It's just a beautiful place, and I know it's a great opportunity to talk to a lot of people. Um, I just wanted to tell you um, why telling this story became so important to me as a journalist. It began literally the day that I saw an article in the Star-Ledger saying this gift was going to be announced on the Oprah Winfrey show. I had never watched Oprah, but I made sure to watch on September 24, 2010, and I was absolutely electrified to see this, God bless you, <laughs> to see this very young billionaire pledge $100 million to the Newark schools, and also to hear Booker and Christie talk about using it to revolutionize education in Newark, to do what so many people agreed was the most important challenge in the country, at last to make public education work for the nation's poorest children. To me, $100 million sounded like all the money in the world, and Booker, Christie, and the reform leaders who praised them, including Education Secretary Arne Duncan speaking on behalf of President Obama, sounded so sure of themselves. We know what works, was their phrase. They would take the best ideas of the education reform movement, bring them all to Newark, and in Booker's words to Zuckerberg, they would flip a city. I really didn't believe they'd achieve change on the almost miraculous scale they were talking about, but I expected to see dramatic advances. I wanted to get as close to this process as I possibly could, because this is exactly what has fascinated me throughout my almost 40 years as a reporter, tracing the process by which big public policy ideas do or don't translate into actual changes in people's lives and understanding why or why not. I saw what was happening in Newark as an opportunity to explore how the democratic process worked or didn't for very disadvantaged children. 
I also thought it was an opportunity to look from the ground level at the national education reform movement. This very potent combination of billionaire philanthropists, charter school leaders, social entrepreneurs, and politicians in both parties who are seeking to upend the status quo of traditional public schools governed by large, usually unionized bureaucracies. The movement has spawned a furious debate over the shape of education nationally. When I started my reporting, the movie Waiting for Superman had just come out, portraying traditional urban public schools as failure factories, teachers' unions as villains, and non-union charter schools as the solution. Two dueling websites had just gone online. One was, <clears throat> one was called WaitingForSuperman.org. The other, NotWaitingForSuperman.org. <laughs> I was struck by how many real issues both sides, the reformers and their opponents, were leaving out. This impassioned national debate had a huge hole in the middle of it, and a majority of the children in Newark and in cities across the country were stranded in that hole. I'll give you two illustrations of this from my reporting early on. For most of the first year after the gift was announced, Newark did not yet have a superintendent. A group of consultants was calling the shots within the district, which was being run by the State Department of Education. These consultants did some important work, in particular getting a handle on the tenure process. But the most public thing they did was to identify which of the absolutely worst district schools to close to make room for expanding charter schools. One school they identified was 15th Avenue School, where for years, barely 20% of children had been reading at grade level. Very little was going right for kids at this school, so it was designated to close, and one of the highest-performing charter schools in the state was to move in. This charter, as was its model, was starting with kindergarten only and would grow one grade each year. So no one currently at 15th Avenue School, a kindergarten through 8th grade school, would be eligible to go there. The consultants decided that the 330 children at 15th Avenue would be transferred into a school just across Westside Park, now, if you were looking at a map, this made perfect sense because the second school was geographically close and it was also underpopulated, so there was plenty of room for the children at 15th Avenue. But if you knew the neighborhood at the ground level, if you lived in it, which the consultants didn't, you knew that Westside Park is a hangout for drug dealers and gang members and that children as young as 5 or 6 or even 12 or 13 should not be walking through it every day to get to and from school. I attended a PTA meeting at 15th Avenue, and the parents were absolutely terrified. They wanted to know how people who profess such concern for their children's welfare would come up with such a plan. Moreover, the school where they were going wasn't much better than 15th Avenue. It was also classified as a failing school. One father said, they're not solving the problem. They're just taking the problem and moving it across the park. So the reformers had a powerful diagnosis of what was wrong with the existing system, but they didn't have a formula for fixing it without causing tremendous stress for Newark children in the district schools where the majority of kids are still being educated. One thing I learned about education in cities, it's an ecosystem. Changes in one area have consequences in another, many of them unintended. Okay, scene two. I attended a public forum that was held one Saturday morning on a new alternative high school graduation test. For the past several years, students who failed the regular high school exit exam had taken an alternative test that was much shorter and easier and was graded by their own teachers, so everyone passed. 
It's a very effective test. <laughs> the state was proposing to use a new test that would raise the bar and be graded by a disinterested party. A number of civil rights organizations participated in the forum, and they argued strenuously against the new test. They had calculated that some 3,000 students in the state who would have passed the test under the old system would fail it under the new one. As they put it, one of the most consequential things you can do to students who have the credits to graduate is to deny them a high school diploma. I found myself wondering, how about denying them a high school education? If students couldn't pass this very basic test, what did a high school diploma mean? Again, here was a forceful, impassioned, important voice in the education debate talking past some of the biggest problems children were navigating every day in Newark and cities like it. It seemed clear to me this was an opportunity for journalism, to write a full story of how both the status quo and the reforms were affecting all Newark school children, in charter schools and in district schools. I wanted to see education from every perspective in the debate, but most importantly, from the eye view of children and the teachers who worked every day to reach them against incredible odds. If, it, if I could write a story, a book, about education reform in Newark that was indisputably true and thorough, essentially filling in the hole that existed in both sides of the national conversation, I hope that it could spur a more honest exchange about what children and schools in cities like Newark truly need to succeed. What should this conversation look like? I actually have a suggestion. Newark and other urban districts desperately need to get more resources to classrooms to support children and their teachers. The reform movement has a mantra. It says poverty is an excuse for failure in district schools in Newark and across the country. That is unquestionably true for some people in some schools. But poverty is also a root cause of failure for children who literally are traumatized from growing up amid violence, family strife, and constant instability. Here's another example from my reporting. Avon Avenue School is located in one of the poorest catchment areas in Newark. I attended a kindergarten class there of 26 children, of whom 15 had child welfare cases, alleged neglect, exposure to violence, exposure to drugs. Some of the children in that class were already so angry at age five that they routinely would, would hit other children and throw chairs at them and their teachers. So not only were these children unable to learn, they frightened some classmates to the point that they couldn't learn either. That class had one of the best teachers in any Newark charter or district school, but on many days her extraordinary skill wasn't enough to overcome those challenges. She did not need excuses. She needed help. I also spent time in Spark Academy, a KIPP elementary school. Spark had some students, although not as many, who were equally troubled. They also had way more resources to support them and their teachers. They had two teachers in classrooms for kindergarten through third grade. They had a tutor for every grade to support children who couldn't keep up, even with two teachers helping them. They had three social workers who did therapy with a total of 70 children a week, while Avon Avenue School had the equivalent of one social worker who didn't have time to do therapy with any children. And Spark had a dean of students and family engagement, whose job it was to make sure there was an adult in every child's life to support the child's learning, if not a parent, a family friend, a godparent. The principal of Spark said there was no way the school could have had its superior academic results without those extra resources. Spark had these resources because KIPP gets more money per pupil to its schools than the Newark School District does, even though it starts out with less. The Newark District schools, like those in many old industrial cities, have been used for generations to do much more than educate children. 
They have variously been a patronage pit for local political bosses and also an employment agency to counter poverty and instability in the city. The district has jobs and sweetheart deals with contractors that no longer serve the schools or the education of children if they ever did. Every stakeholder in education, from state government to unions to parents to politicians to local community organizations to the education reformers, ought to figure out how to get as many of these resources to children and the teachers and principals who know their needs best. One of the leaders, one of the leading scholars of the education reform movement actually said to me, there should be a pottery barn rule for proponents of disruptive change in existing school districts. You broke it, you bought it. There are lots of other issues to discuss, but I want to leave time for questions, so I'll just touch on one. The role of private philanthropists now shaping public education policy. For generations, the foundation of deceased early 20th century industrialists dominated education philanthropy. Since around the year 2000, living billionaires has, have displaced them. Bill Gates of Microsoft, the Walton family of the Walmart fortune, Eli Broad, the California insurance and real estate magnate. They are making targeted, very large donations in hopes of disrupting the existing education system, which they see as antiquated and unequal to the task of educating the next generation. That's the context in which Mark Zuckerberg came to pledge $100 million to Newark, a city he had never visited. He hoped to transform public education on the same scale that he had transformed global communications from his Harvard dorm room at age 19. Like many philanthropists, he came to the cause through personal experience. His girlfriend, now his wife, Priscilla Chan, had worked as a teacher for a year after college, and when they socialized with friends in Silicon Valley, he felt that their contemporaries treated her as if she were doing charity work. Yet in his view, teaching was one of the most important jobs in society. His hope was to use his philanthropy to create a path-breaking new teacher's contract in Newark that could be copied in cities across the country and would have the effect of raising the status of teachers in society. His idea was to pay very large bonuses to the very best teachers, up to 50% over and above their base salary, and to get rid of, quote, the very worst teachers. These were the kind of rewards paid at Facebook, and he believed a similar system would attract the best college graduates in the country into teaching, much as he was now attracting them to Facebook. He said Facebook never could have succeeded without these kinds of applicants, and he didn't see how public education, such a challenging enterprise, was going to succeed without them either. Booker and Christie added to this plan an initiative to expand charter schools and institute what they called systems change in the district schools, a state-of-the-art student data system, a new system for evaluating teachers and principals. With charter schools and a district that ran like a high-performing business, they thought they would arrive within five years at a, at a model, they called it a proof point, that Zuckerberg with his philanthropy could take to one city after the next, solving the education crisis in all of urban America. Zuckerberg did, spend up did, did end up spending $100 million in Newark, and matching funders spent a second $100 million. But five years have now elapsed, and there is no model of educational excellence in Newark. They spent $60 million expanding charter schools. They spent about $50 million on a new teacher, teacher's contract that holds teachers more accountable for effective instruction, but did not revolutionize the pay system, as Zuckerberg had hoped, because the district couldn't afford it. They spent $20 million on consultants, many of them paid $1,000 a day, to implement their systems changes at the district level. And they set aside another $30 million to be sent on assorted other labor reforms, including a new principal's contract. 
that hasn't materialized yet. This did not flip a city, as Booker had promised. The doubling of students in charter schools will, will undoubtedly increase student achievement in Newark because Newark charters, unlike many across the state, significantly outperform the district schools. But outcomes for the 60% of Newark children still in district schools have not improved, despite the $89 million committed or spent on labor contract reforms and $20 million on consultants. In fact, district school performance on the state standardized test in grades 3 through 8 has gone down, not up, since this all started. One reason seems clear. It was contained in an email that an aide to Booker wrote early in the negotiations over Zuckerberg's gift saying this, Mark Zuckerberg's money is not going to the classroom. Or actually it said MZ's money is not going to the classroom. As I said, the emphasis was on systems and management changes, running the school district like a business, expecting better management to travel through the system and translate into better student performance. The reformers weren't wrong to emphasize systems change in a district whose management was borderline dysfunctional but they emphasized those changes to the exclusion of figuring out how to get more resources to schools and classrooms for children who are years behind academically and who simply can't learn because of trauma from growing up in Newark. Had they engaged the best teachers and principals in Newark, in district or charter schools, in planning their agenda, they might have taken a different approach. But this entire plan was formulated without the input of Newark residents or educators. In fact, they learned about the revolution coming to their schools at the same moment as Oprah's national television audience. Mark Zuckerberg seems to have learned a lot from this experience. He and Priscilla Chan have announced that they will continue contributing to the cause of education for the most underserved children. But from now on, they will work close to home in the Bay Area. They said they will work to understand the desires of communities and the complex needs of the children that they hope to help, a very different approach from the one they took in Newark. Within the very polarized national discussion about education, there's a debate over whether you can improve urban school districts without first solving poverty. My reporting convinces me that you don't have to solve poverty to improve education for the poorest kids, but you definitely have to address its consequences. And to address it, you need more resources at the school level. I'd like to return to the KIPP elementary school I mentioned, Spark Academy, to tell you about something I witnessed that clarified this for me. One morning late in 2011, a mother of three students at the school was badly beaten by her boyfriend while her children were in school. The mother appeared in the school office, her face bleeding and swollen, clutching her newborn baby, whose skull had been fractured, and desperate for help. The principal, Joanna Belcher, accompanied her and the baby to the hospital, persuaded her to file a police report, and accompanied her to the courthouse, where they sat together for hours waiting for a lawyer to be assigned. I spoke with the lawyer who ultimately was assigned, and she said, I had never seen that in all my career, a principal coming to court with a victim. Even more unusual was what happened back at the school, where the dean of student and family engagement that I told you about took up the case. This is a position unheard of in district schools, a dean responsible for developing individualized help for children who are struggling because of issues outside the classroom. The dean created a carpooling schedule involving seven different staff members who would pick up the three children each morning at a neutral location. The family had moved to a shelter whose address was secret and returned them each day after school. Sarah Dewey, formerly a teacher in the Bronx, 
and the lead social worker at the school, held counseling sessions with the children and also guided their teachers on how to speak with them about the traumatic experience to help them feel safe and able to learn. Not one of those children missed even one day of school throughout their ordeal in the shelter, and all of them finished the year above grade level. A district school teacher put it to me this way, We have to ask of every school, what does this particular school need in order to meet the challenges of the neighborhood that it's situated in? And then we simply have to find the courage to provide it. We have to be able to show children, why is this education meaningful? How can you possibly do that if so many other things are not working? Thank you. Um, I'd be glad to take questions if you want. <laughs> yes. Really? Never. You don't talk about reform in Baltimore City. You don't talk about Alonso came here, we had great hopes, he came out of New York City, he left. I don't remember what circumstance he left, but you know, on the tenure questions, at least in Newark, Booker stuck his neck out. The mayor in Washington stuck his neck out and with uh, Michelle 
Reyes's uh, school uh, commission. Most people don't know that in Baltimore City, less than 50% pass the state required uh, graduation tests. I took those tests when I was in state school. They're a pretty low bar. And when Nancy Grasmick was superintendent, we were we had to ratify the requirement of the passing the tests. And when we went all over the state and held hearings, Nancy says one day, we're going to need you to introduce a project for those who can't pass. It's going to be a small one. I said, I said to Nancy, why are we doing this? And Nancy's very capable, experienced. She understood the system and the 24 school districts. She said, it's the only way we're going to get it through. The figures that came out earlier this year were that 75% of the people grad, um, graduated from high school. Less than 50% of the people pass the test. The other are passing it through a project. The public doesn't know how bad it is. And we had, we're going to have an election coming up next year. I ran for mayor against O'Malley in 13 of the worst performing out of the then 180 schools be turned over to different universities or charter schools, a variety of, and O'Malley and the elected officials and the school leaders locked arms in front of North Avenue and said, leave our crappy schools alone. And he went on to run for governor and now for president. What bothers me is in this city, where is the outrage? We have outrage over Freddie Gray. There's no outrage over public education. I ran as a Republican, as a reform candidate. You know, it was a crazy idea. I got 10% of the vote. That's the world we live in. I was a very credible candidate. What? I'm asking, so from your experience, how do you get the community riled up enough, outraged enough about something we can do. I agree with you. The cards that were dealt with when the kids enter the school at the beginning of the school year, that's what they are. Poverty and all that stuff. We can't solve those problems. We deal with the kids that are delivered to us at the beginning of the school year. We have to give them the best shot. And we don't give them the best shot. And the people in this city, the surrounding area, never get riled up. They vote in the same kinds of people. They don't raise the issues. You know, they talk about the normal. This is not a political issue, for God's sake. I'm sorry. Can not we a let, can we let it's not a political issue. Can How do we get people excited? Sir, outrage? can we let someone else have a question? I'm sorry. Well, Gail, Gail can answer maybe about being riled up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Riled up in Newark? And I can tell you that in Newark, um, there, there never was a, a public outcry about the failures of the existing system. There was an enormous outcry about this reform effort, which came in without you know, any inclusion of the people and, and the, the, the thinking, the, the very, it was very deliberate on Cory Booker and Chris Christie's part to not include 
you know, to not have a democratic process to change the schools because they said it would be overtaken by the unions and by political bosses who had an investment in the existing system. And so they said, on behalf of children, we have to bypass the community. But that meant they were bypassing their parents. And it wasn't, you know, it, it just, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a dead end. You're never going to accomplish anything that way. And the, the uprising basically, you know, exploded in the middle of the whole effort. Um, but what what I see happening now, interestingly, is um, because the, the Governor Christie recently announced that he is going to start a process of returning the schools to the control of the people of Newark. The state has controlled the schools for 20 years, and the, there's been no voice that Newark has been able to raise about their schools. So it's become almost like a torpor. Like no, you know, everybody just acts almost like you know they go limp when it comes to education. I Oh, because this, the um, the state took over the schools twenty years ago, and there, there's no there is an elected school board, but they have no power. And the state appoints the superintendent, and you know controls the funding and controls the personnel and the curriculum. They control everything about the Newark schools. So they've had school board elections, you know, every year because they elect three people a year. It's a nine member board, and um, but you know those people are elected to the board, and then whatever they vote, if the state decides to overrule it, they do. So it's become kind of like just a, a political... Well, but it's also the the, um, the school board has just become this almost, um, you know, it, it's just been become a platform for demagogues to get up and argue against the state and, and then vote for something that they know the state is going to overturn and then the state overturns it. And they say, see, we have no control. And it's just been this process for 20 years. It's just going in circles and serving no one. And the people who run for the school board, I mean, most of them don't have even a college degree. So they're not, they're not really qualified to run a school system. So, But what I was going to say is that, that there's now this really big grassroots movement of people, including teachers and former teachers and principals in Newark, to try to get really capable people to run for the school board and to build a big grass co- grassroots coalition to support them when the, when control does return. That's what I meant, when the, when the, the city's again allowed to elect its own school board that will have power. And I actually think it, it seems like you know, for want of a better word, an overused word, it's kind of empowering for the city to feel that this, you know, after all these years, you know, we will have control. And I think the big question is whether, you know, the people you're talking about who, you know, try to use the school district for their own ends and not for the kids will get control or whether, you know, people who really do stand up for getting the kids what they need out of the public schools end up winning control. And, you know... We'll see, but they they certainly you know it, they're they're certainly moving toward having a lot better leadership in the city on education, which is a good thing. So, um, <clears throat> I've heard arguments, you know, passionate arguments on both sides of elected school board, appointed school board, right? Um, I think that that is a very tough issue because, well, there's there's so many things involved in it. School board elections in Newark, and I think in a lot of cities, are held on a day when no other elections are held. It's on a Wednesday. Nothing else is on the ballot. Nobody votes. 
Um, and so it took, in a city where there's over 100,000 registered voters, it took 3,000 votes to get a seat on the school board. And so, you know, I mean, to me, it seemed crazy that Cory Booker didn't mobilize 3,500 people and just elect the whole board. But he didn't. He didn't, you know, he just didn't get that involved in trying to mobilize the election. So the people who controlled the school board were the teachers union and um, the, there, there's a, one political boss in Newark who controls more votes than anybody. So he, most of the time, had you know nine members of the nine-member school board who were on his slate. But the, sometimes he was in, you know, cooperating with the union, so they had the same people on the same slate. But it, it was never like this was an election that, you know, the people had a voice in. And the, that's why I'm thinking if if it is a real election for a real school board, maybe. You know, maybe there's a real possibility of a coalition of parents and community leaders electing higher quality people. So, look at our city. We we have a real board to be proud of. An elected board to be proud of? I don't think so. I think it, I don't know if it's because you know in other cities they elect the board on the you know on a day when nobody else is on the ballot, um, and um, you know. But I, I just I, I sort of feel like if you know if they could actually elect the board, you know, even on a day like that, and have an election in which people think they actually have a voice, there might be a lot more turnout. I don't know why that doesn't happen in other cities. So maybe I'm just being wishful about it. But there is, I mean, you know, there's a strong feeling that mayoral control, where the mayor appoints all of the school board, at least allows one person with a, you know, with a clear view of what direction the district should go in to go ahead and pull, select people aligned with that and move in that direction. If people don't like it, they can vote them out. So, I don't know. What do they do here? Is it an elected board? Appointed. And do, how does that How's the board viewed in terms of, you know, as a you know, governing the schools? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. There's no villain, you know, and there's no hero either. It's just Steve. What caused the state to take over Newark 20 years ago? Um, what has changed that Christie would hand it back? And did Zuckerberg focus on Newark in part because he could work just with the state and the mayor? Yes. I mean, the last question, yes. I mean, he saw it as, um, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, um, Eli Broad and Gates, they tend to look for districts that are controlled by a mayor or a governor um, because that way they can, you know, they can actually invest in a strategy that they can identify. Um, and usually it's, a, it's the education reform strategy. But what happened in Newark, which, which had been going on for a very long time in the school district, was that there was just tremendous rampant corruption and total neglect of kids. And there was an investigation by the state um, that went on for years, 
and it it had there was this one it it had a very long investigation with a long report that came out of it but there was one sentence that just said everything it said the longer children spend in the newark public schools the less likely they are to succeed because their their scores actually as time went on they get less and less and less proficient in math and english um and so it was just a complete you know it was a district that was just being fleeced um, there were there were two principals who had um, a sham company that owned um, a district school, and the the school district was leasing this building from this sham company that was run by these two principals who were leaders of a political organization. I mean, the principals, it was routine that you, you got your job as a principal by raising the most money for members of the school board. And so the, these two guys had this had created this sham company, and the school board was leasing the school from them. And it was just full of asbestos and, you know, I mean, it was a dangerous place, and it was an elementary school. And I guess it had been appraised at some very modest price, like, Anyway, and $70,000, and the school board was just about to buy it from this sham company for $2.2 million. And so the state stopped that. Um, and when they, so what they did was they came in and they basically cleaned up the corruption in the district, or, I mean, some of it. I don't think it's a clean district now by any means. Um, and, uh, you know, what's, what's changed is not so much the student achievement because, like I said, it's worse now than it was. I mean, not, ma- it, it's just mar- marginally worse. Um, but um, I think Christie wants out. I think he feels like he, you know, he came in to sort of ride, ride in on a, you know, a horse and rescue this district, and he was he was foiled, and his his plan didn't work, and he's running for president, and he can't afford to have this mess on his hands. So he's just, you know, I mean, there, there's really, and I think they they would argue that all these systems changes and management systems that they put in have made the district operate better and that it is more capable of governing itself now. But I don't know that that's true. Yes? Can you talk a little bit about the teachers' union and whether you think it realistically ever could have been sort of marshaled to be part of the revolutionary reform with all of this money and... There's no way that it ever would have been. I mean, the teachers' union was just, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, ideologically against charter schools because it means when charters, in, in Newark, you know, there's no, there's no growing population. So when children leave the district schools for charters, the public money follows them, and the district schools have to lay off. And so that's, you know, threatening jobs. And the union is totally against that. Um, no. Oh, that's right. This is different in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. There's, they're, they're non-union. And all of New Jersey, there's no charter school that has a union. Um, so that's a big difference. Um, and, and also, um, you know, just, it was interesting because the, um, you know, this revolutionary teacher's contract that they wanted to get. Um, one reason it wasn't so revolutionary was that um, uh, Zuckerberg had wanted a, a contract with no, uh, no protection for seniority. Um, that was a big thing that he and Booker and Christie saw as just a total impediment to being able to run, you know, a district with the highest quality teachers. And especially when you have a growing charter sector and you need to lay off teachers in the district schools under the seniority protections, you had to lay off the newest teachers first with no, 
you know, regard to whether they were higher quality than someone who was staying. So, you know, they said it was absolutely essential to change the seniority rules in the contract. Well, what Zuckerberg didn't know and what Booker neglected to tell him is that the seniority rules are enshrined in state law. They're not something that a contract can affect. So, you know, they they had to go to the legislature and re and reform the tenure law, which had been in place for over a hundred years. So that that went on for like two years. And guess guess who's the biggest contributor to all the politicians in the to the, all the legislators, the teachers union by far the biggest contributor. So the thing that that struck me as kind of amazing was that they did agree to an awful lot of changes in the tenure law that made it a much you know just sort of, I think, a better system. Like, you used to get tenure in three years, um, and now you have to work four years to get tenure, and you have to be rated, you know, effective or highly effective for the last two years in a row before you get it. And you can also lose tenure if for two years you're rated ineffective um, two years in a row. And, I mean, you don't lose it on the spot. There's a process, but it's a much quicker process, and it's not as expensive. So they agreed to all that in return for one thing, protecting seniority. And so that stayed intact, and it, it wasn't anything they could touch in the Newark contract. Um, so what they did in the Newark contract, which again, it sounds so minor, but it was a huge change in terms of the way teachers have been compensated and the way the union has insisted on them being compensated, is that now you, instead of getting an annual raise every year almost without regard to your performance, you have to be rated effective or highly effective, this new rating system to get your raise. And if you're partially effective or ineffective, the bottom two, you don't get your raise. And so there's a there's a thought that, you know, over time the ineffective teachers will leave because they won't see this as a job that's ultimately going to lead to a comfortable salary and a comfortable life. You're just going to be stuck at your starting wage. Um, but so far they, you know, this is another discouraging thing. So far, 85% of the teachers were rated effective or highly effective. So, you know, yeah. And so, you know, even though a smaller percentage of those teachers left last year, it was a much larger number than those of the ineffective teachers who left. So it's just, it just feels like, you know, the idea they were going to do this in five years is just almost hilarious because... It, you know, it's it's just a very slow process. And I, you know, I guess my only thought is that um, the, there are so many parents leaving for charter schools. I mean, there are 40% now in Newark. And I think if there were more charter schools, more parents would leave. And it seems like an enlightened, an enlightened union leader might see that you really do have to change in a big way if you want to save the district and save these jobs. Um, but there's not a leader like that in Newark, so... <laughs> what do you think of the uh, uh, tension between um, e-schools and charter schools and the argument that um, charter schools threaten to drain away the engaged parents, the, the, um, the people who might you know, be the champions of, of change or at least demand higher standards? I think it's that's really happening, you know, because they're, they're the... Those are the parents who are much more motivated to do something for their kids um, and to get them a better education. 
Um, but they, one of the things that they did as part of this reform was they, they made a universal enrollment system. So now instead of automatically going to your neighborhood school, you pick a school, any school in the city, charter or district. So they, they think that's going to be make, that's going to make it easier. There's no more lotteries. It's just, you know, you go in and you check which school you want. And you're supposed to check five schools and there's an algorithm that sorts out who gets which school and the the people the children who are the neediest kids are get their first choices so it's it's possible that over time that will even out the kids going to charter schools but it's it's unmistakable that they just have much more engaged parents and they actually require that of their parents in a lot of cases so the district schools yeah I mean, I think it makes it a lot harder. It just makes it continually harder. Just like, you know, over the, the charter schools, they do have, like, this much superior performance, but they also have less needy kids. And, you know, I think that at first that was probably because they were actively creaming the best, you know, getting the best kids in through, you know, just kind of gaming the system. And I think that now there's less of that, but the um, it, it's still just like... It's it's like a selection bias. Who's gonna who's gonna choose to send their kid to a charter? It's somebody who's much more involved in trying to steer their kid's education. So it's tough. Yes. Uh, can you talk about these consultants that $20 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you wanna get one of those jobs? <laughs> You know, there doesn't seem to be any accountability for these people. They they came in and they got huge contracts because they're they're considered by I mean, these are firms that work in every district where there's education reform activity because there's always the you know, what they call the venture philanthropists, you know, the billionaire boys club who support education reform. When when there's a district that has the kind of leadership that wants to do their kind of reform, they, they come in with their money and they want these consultants on the scene because they think they're experts. And so, you know, they're like, I mean, they're like the, the guy who came in to manage the um, community engagement campaign, which was a complete farce because they decided they were going to pretend that they were having community engagement, but they weren't going to tell anybody what they were doing. And so they hired a a political um, strategist from New York City who didn't know his way around Newark, but he had been a consultant to the charter school movement in New York. He had successfully led this campaign to get the state to lift the cap on charter schools. And so they hired him for $1.8 million to come to Newark and lead these 10 community forums that had nothing to do with what they were planning. Um, Well, yeah, like he, what happened was they had, they had a, uh, he has a foundation with a board, but then the, the plan was that they created a Newark foundation to, to receive his money and the matching money. And the, the, uh, the board of that foundation, in order to have a seat on the board, you had to give at least $10 million. And then they thought that was a little too much, so they changed it to $5 million. So there was no, not even a foundation in Newark. The Prudential Foundation couldn't even give that kind of money. So the people on the board were from Goldman Sachs and from the Zuckerberg Foundation and from um, William Ackman, who's a big hedge fund manager who gave $25 million. So there were like three people on this board, and they, you know, they, they, they were just of the opinion that 
these are the consultants that we ought to bring in, and they, they ought to bring in this particular consulting firm that does teacher evaluation systems to completely rewrite the teacher evaluation system. And so this, this consulting firm, they, um, they fly consultants in from cities across the country for, for a day or two at a time, and this is what you're paying for. You're paying for these people to fly, and they fly first class, and they come in and they work for a day, and then they leave, and then there's another... You know, and then and and then once they're there, they keep finding things that the district needs them to do, and so they get another contract for another five hundred thousand dollars. And they, I mean, they they never left. They came at the beginning, and they were there the last. You know, they're still there. Yeah. What's the accountability for all of these consultants? There isn't any. I mean, because it's private philanthropy. You know, and the, I mean, there is no accountability for private philanthropy. Well, I think that you know they're not too happy about having this reported, um, and and um, you know initially the, the the current superintendent, you know the I didn't I didn't bring you up to date on all the politics, but when Christie announced that he was going to start the movement to give power back to Newark, they pushed they forced out the superintendent who had been leading all their efforts and who had become incredibly unpopular and had become a lightning rod for public opposition. So he just removed her summarily um, in June and put in her place uh, the man who had been his education commissioner, um, who was her boss and was in charge of, of her and managed her. And so basically it was, you know, has the same views and plans that she has. Um, and um, he, he, before he was the state commissioner, he was one of the consultants. And his firm got $2.9 million to do all this management consulting in the district. And he was yelling at me about, you know, you, this is outrageous. This, month, this number, $20 million, is completely inaccurate. And these consultants did great work. They saved the district. And, you know, he was going on and on. And he was, said he was going to have a press conference and defend the consultants. And then he wrote me an email a couple days ago and said that he had realized that my numbers were correct. And that, you know, he said, and in fact, I guess you could say that most of the work was not you know, worth the dollar. So, you know, but I mean, I, I, I think that it's the first time anybody has even identified it because they, when I was asking questions about it, they were saying, well, you know, that's just a liberal view. You're just kind of like a, um, what did they say, a Greenwich Village liberal who, um, <laughs> you know, who's just, you know, upset because business, you know, business consultants come in and you just have a bias against business consultants. And, you know, they added value. That was just the answer. They added value. Um, but, you know, I think, I really do think that it, it's until you report it, you know, they just say this is the way business is done. And we. Have you heard from Mark Zuckerberg since I haven't, but I heard from the CEO of his foundation. And um, she said, you know, I mean, what she basically wrote me when the New York Times book review came out, and she congratulated me on it. So. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, some of the numbers, it takes a long time to get them, but you can go through the um, the tax forms that the foundation has to file every year, but they don't file them until over a year afterwards. So, you know, since I was doing this for a long time, I ultimately was able to confirm a lot of the figures. But um, as it turned out, there was somebody on the inside who was furious about this who helped me get the numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, I've thought about that, um, and I don't. I don't feel I'm qualified to say because I think this is just like you know, it it is rocket science. You know, and I think everybody thinks, oh, I know what you know. Like you can go to these public forums, and people will say, well, what they really need to do is get this curriculum that they have at my son's private school because then that would work because it works at the private school. Um, but I, my feeling from you know having that example I told you about at that charter school that. Get, got money to the classroom and actually set up an entire, you know, team of people who were there to to sort of, you know, to to deal with the problems that that set kids back, so that they could stay on track and learn whether it was emotional problems, academic problems, or whatever. I would, I mean, I really feel that somehow getting the the re, the existing resources to the schools in the classroom and having you know principals and leadership teams trained. To, to use their resources that way, you know, so that, I mean, I think that's a tremendous skill to learn, you know, how do you, how do you take those resources and actually use them in an effective strategic way to support the kids? Now, my thought of like, how would you actually get the resources out of the central office to the schools is just like, once again, the political problem. But the way I would have done it, knowing what I know now, is um, I think I would have had, I don't know if this is a real term, but like a forensic accounting of like where is this money in the district going? Because I literally tried to, I mean, I'm not, I don't have a public finance background or a financial background of any kind. And I just, I couldn't, there, there were so many different accounts and they, you know, they, they were accounts that didn't really, what they were called didn't in any way refer to where the money went. So I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. But I did pull a couple of contracts just randomly for things like the scaffolding on buildings that were crumbling. And like there was a one scaffolding contract that was going to the son of this enormous political boss in central New Jersey. And it was not, you know, he was getting paid, I don't remember the numbers, but it was ridiculous how much the contract was for. And it was, you know, a, a contract that was just, they had called a couple of contractors and picked him. It wasn't like they had to bid for it. And he's a convicted felon. And the state law says that you can't be a state contractor in education or anything else if you're a convicted felon. So I, you know, I asked about it, and the contracting director was just like, well, I'll have to look into that, you know. And then if he, but you know, so it just seems clear to me that you know there's all kinds of sweetheart deals and contracting money that's going where it shouldn't. And there's also a lot of jobs that just really are that they've been there for generations because some political boss got this job added, and you know that that would take an agreement by unions and civil service to agree that we're going to transfer these jobs to the schools, but. I think if you had a real community engagement and had this audit and made it completely transparent and showed people this is where this money is going and if you had the money in the school we could do these things that the, this charter school does for these kids then it seems like you could have a real process of deciding what kind of tough decisions are we willing to make to get this money to the schools. I don't know, but I mean, I think that, and then I would spend whatever money there was training principals to figure out how to use the money to support the kids. But, you know, it sounds, it's a little rational, you know. <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, I had uh, two questions I wanted to ask you, if you had any thoughts on 
thoughts about. One is if you thought that maybe um, charter schools were lead-in for schools for profit, and then also uh, the Teach America system. That's I don't know. I don't know if it's taking off or not. But again, any thoughts on those two? Um, <clears throat> you know, I. I wonder about the charter schools. Like, are they going to remain not? All the ones in New Jersey are nonprofit. Although I think there is one that's not. And I don't know about here. Does your state law require them to be nonprofit, or are they? Uh, I'm not really sure. Yeah. So some are, some are some are for profit. Some charters are for. Right. They were. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I know that Edison Edison was in Philadelphia also, and they closed there. They didn't. They had. They they didn't. I think they they didn't make money and they didn't help kids. So it was just, what were they there for? But um, I you know I actually wonder about that because if they did become for profit, um, there would be such an incentive to just cut costs and you know have you know have technology educating children and not teachers and you know I and I kind of wonder about this charter school that has that I saw that spends so heavily on staff and social services to support the kids and would you know any private investor agree with that they would say well gee look at all this money you know let's put it back in the company or something so I I don't know what what the protections are to keep that from happening and then teach for America um I have a lot of conflicting feelings about it, and I should disclose my son did it. He was teach for him. Um, but he's, he's still a teacher. I mean, he, I should, you know, I mean, for what it's worth, he, he wanted to become a teacher, and he did it so that he could start being a teacher. Um, and he's, he's, it's six years on, and he's still teaching. Um, but, and I, I do, th- you know, I, there are some absolutely amazing people who have come through Teach for America and stayed in the communities where they were and have become, like, you know, leaders of schools and leaders in the community. And so I think, you know, again, it's only as good as the people in it. And um, from what I, I... I haven't done my own independent reporting on it, but I've read that um, they've really tried hard to, to change the kind of people that they're recruiting. They're no longer getting, you know, just the elite college graduates. They're getting a lot of people from the communities where they're going to be working. Um, and, you know, it seems like there's a lot of sincerity about trying to do it better. And, and I think now they're going to have um, some student or some core members, some percentage of them who will stay for, you know, have them stay for longer than two years and require them to stay for longer than two years. So they seem to be evolving um, but it seemed like it started as kind of a missionary program. And I think a lot of kids, you know, went with great ideals about helping, you know, underprivileged children and just had no idea what they were getting into and didn't last. So. Excuse me. Uh, Diane Ravitch, uh, when she wrote her books on education, obviously she wrote her books for the viewpoint that she changed 180 degrees in terms of viewpoint. Right. What changes did you undertake? You articulated some at the beginning, but what changes went through your lifestyle, your perception of public schools, your perception of teachers? Like, arguably, teacher morale right now is a major issue in yes, this country. Yes, it's huge. And, and people saying, should we go into teaching? I don't want to do this. I can't afford it. I'm getting hammered. And you've got these outside people, as you just articulated, who really don't know much about education at all, but say, we're going to change it. And then they change it by giving a test that, that who's validity and reliability is really questionable. Right. You know, I mean, so what changes did you kind of go through? 
Well, you know, I, um, you know, I, I realized when I got into it that I didn't know a lot. I was very naive, you know, and um, I was going to learn, you know, from the beginning, you know, how this system worked and how I thought, um, what I thought about it. Um, but I think I did at the beginning um, think that charter schools were, you know, um, just sort of an unqualified good thing. I didn't, I didn't want to see the public system decimated, and it didn't occur to me that there was a relationship between <laughs> charter schools growing and public systems getting decimated. Um, but I, what I did see in Newark that really, you know, woke me up was that, um, you know, the charter schools can be good and they can be bad. And um, there's um, there's a real problem of this sort of inequity of the the kids and the parents who are in charter schools and the kids and the parents who are in district schools, and you know there's a very very you know this 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 charter school that went into that Fifteenth Avenue school that I told you about the highest performing charter school in New Jersey. Um, they have their high school in Newark. Um, they they start at kindergarten and the kids go all the way up to high school. The high school is seventy three percent female, so you know the boys are gone basically, and it's not for everyone. Um, and so, how can you say that that you know that I mean I I thought when I got into it that oh these schools are just doing magical things and you know there should be more of them, but they're not serving. You know if you, if you just had a system of all charters, where would the boys go? You know. <laughs> No, I mean it's a big problem. So, but the public system is is so, you know, I mean, it, it's burdened by the the burdens of poverty in Newark, you know, um, and it, but I but it also could be so much better than it is, and that's the thing that struck me, you know, that there there are there is there is a lot of room to improve it, and everybody in it seems to defend it. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that a lot of teachers on the ground, you know, are very adamant that the system needs to get better um, but they're not the ones who have the loud voices so. and they also know what's going on above right but you know I also I mean I got, I've gotten frustrated with Diane Ravitch because she makes a very strong case but she you know for what's, what's wrong with the reformers but she doesn't talk about what you can do to fix the district schools so that they serve kids better and you know there's just an assumption that this is you know the, the system is fine and it's not you know, you know Warren Buffett has made the statement. I know how to improve public schools. Abolish all private schools. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So everybody's in them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what it is. It is that's school choice, isn't it? And and Newark is ninety five percent black and Latino in a state that's overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly wealthy. Um, so there's just this incredibly concentrated segregation of the poorest people in the cities, and the schools are left there to try to conquer everything. You know, not just educate the kids, but overcome everything that they're facing in these really tough cities. And it's, you know, the only way. Yeah, I'm sorry to be depressing everyone, <laughs> but. But, it, but you know, I mean, and there's another in Newark now. They're talking about trying to create something called community schools, which have been tried, you know, in the past. I mean, this is kind of like every idea comes back around every 20 years or so. But it would be to have um, schools that are neighborhood centers of social services, not just for the kids, but for the you know people and families in the neighborhood. And you know, I mean, 
that sounds to me like that's that's what you ought to have. And they could be they would be open all night or late into the night as community centers. It just seems like it would be so much more healthy for the community to have that. So I don't know why that you know that's been tried before apparently, and you know everybody says yeah yeah that there was the community school movement that was that failed. Um, but maybe it didn't have the resources or the right kind of, maybe, you know, maybe people didn't really learn enough about how to manage those resources strategically. Because, like, what happens in education is you create something, you put a lot of money in it, everybody hires their friends, and it doesn't really end up attacking the real problem. Um, so, I don't know, I think community schools sounds like a promising idea, and I hope they run them well so that they actually work. Yes? Um, well, f first of all, I, I would want to know that the superintendent was a really strong leader that had the support of the community and the teachers, um, because, you know, the, the superintendent they brought into Newark was kind of seen as public enemy number one, and, um, she wasn't trusted by, you know, the people who worked for her or the community, and she really didn't have, you know, the strength to use this money to change the system. So I, I would, I guess it would be the, the superintendent. Um, I, I would want the union to be on board. I don't think you can do it if the union fights you. Um, and, hmm. I, and I, and I would want parents to be engaged and to want to to be in favor of it. I would want it to be something that the grassroots in the community wanted because i I mean I think the idea of coming in from the top and imposing something on the community is like if you get anything done it 's not going to last anyway, so you know it has to be something because the the philanthropist and the money is eventually going to run out and go away, and if there 's not a base in the community for it and a leader in the school district who has the support of the community then it's all going to go to waste. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been a substitute teacher in the school system now for five years until I'm also educated. My children have four and a half college degrees. I know what education looks like. And it's clear that, <clears throat> and that one, educating hasn't changed much or But you know, in Newark, you have to be a great teacher to reach these kids. In in most cases, because right, right, and like you said, they. Before you're going to be able to create uh, any you know, real 
Because otherwise, you just end up with uh, self-selected groups. And the ones that self-select learn, learn, the ones that don't, don't. That's it. Right. Right, right. Hey, Joe. Well, one of the things that, that worries me when you, <coughs> you talk about the demographics of Newark um, is um, I can see I can see people saying, sitting out in their comfortable suburban houses, that that um, well, all, you know, Mark Zuckerberg gave them all that money and they still couldn't do it. Right. agree with you I mean it was you know when he when that gift was given if you know if you looked on like there's all these people write comments on the the website of the Newark Star Ledger and it was just like thousands and thousands of people saying well why is he giving those people that money you know and I mean and you know much less delicately worded than that you know. <laughs> and um, you know they're just going to waste it I know how this story is going to end and you know but I mean what was interesting was it wasn't the people of Newark who wasted the money it was the you know it, it was the, the brilliant philanthropists and their CEOs and their board members who wasted the money so for the schools <clears throat> Yeah, New Jersey back in the 90s had one of the first um, court rulings like that that required the state to equalize funding between the poorest and the richest districts. So that's why Newark has over $20,000 per, per child. But the, the law, um, it, it was a court ruling that then was turned into legislation, and the legislation has been changed now, and now the money follows the child. So the, if there's a poor child in the suburbs, you know, they get the money too, and the Newark isn't getting as much money as it used to. And now Christie has said for the last several years that the state doesn't have, can't afford to fund the full formula. So they're not, you know, the, the money just gets tighter every year. And, um, and I don't really know, I think now with, this, with the legislation they passed a few years ago to change the original equalizing legislation, I think that it's going to be a lot harder to defend the amount of money that they're getting. Um, yeah, because it, there's not the same guarantee that they'll get it. Kath? Um, does the Star Ledger or any other nearby newspapers report very vigorously on the Newark school system? Is there much written about the corruption? I mean, until, until you. Nothing. No. Or, or the success of the Kim School? Or Nothing. There's, there's no coverage. There's, there's like one person who covers all of Newark, so they cover city, the, the, the mayor, the city council, the police, and education. It's just been, the, the paper's been completely 
you know, it, it's just been eaten alive. And they, when I first started, there was a full-time education writer, a full-time writer on the mayor, and a full-time writer on the city council, and now there's one person doing all of that. It's just, I mean, it, it's been gutted, the newspaper. Right, it's true. It's true. I mean, there's just there, nothing gets reported at all. It's amazing. Um, I used to, I used to like when I was doing my reporting. I used to feel like I found a front what I, what would have been a front page story every week, and it, you never saw it in the newspaper. It's really a problem. I mean, I think it's part of the problem. You know, <clears throat> Steve. It's interesting. I don't know. Um, I think it's all. Yeah. Right. Right. <clears throat> it's an interesting thought. Right. So what is the what are the teachers paying in those charter schools versus the teachers in the public schools and what is the what are the average cost per pupil in the charter schools versus the public schools? That's the direct connection to history. Right. Um, you know the the teachers in the charter schools start out with a lot more money than the teachers in the district schools. Um, they get, I mean, I think that a starting teacher gets sixty thousand dollars in the charter school, whereas in the district they get fifty. Um, but they work longer hours, um, and uh, you know that I they they used to not get as much of a pay raise as the district gets as time goes on. But now they're starting to, you know, in order to compete and in order to keep the charter school teachers, they're paying them better. I mean, they for the first time they're dealing with charter school teachers who have children, you know, who get married and have kids because they had these very young teachers who were single and just worked constantly. And now they have lives and they've had to really change a lot about their compensation system. So I think it's a change. I think it's changing. Yes. Right. Right. <clears throat> some of them are great, some of them are terrible. Also, the Able Foundation some um, years ago did a study of KIPP, which is a wonderful school, um, absolutely. But what they discovered was that an enormous number of children had left that school. Really? Couldn't, couldn't make it in 
Yeah. So we're talking about different kids. Yeah, and yes. <clears throat> exactly, because it's really a function. I mean, and see, the KIPP school that I was at, um, they, they have this just ethic that they will not kick or force anybody out. But then there's another charter school. It's a different, you know, um, organization that just, you know, has like this huge suspension rate. And this is the one that has 73% girls in the high school. So it's really a function. I mean, it's not even the large organization like all of KIPP. It's that particular KIPP school or that particular network of KIPP schools and who the leader is. Um, Oh, it does. Huh. Retention, you mean holding kids back? Or keeping them, that staying at the school year after year? Huh. Because you said, she said the opposite, didn't well, she? Well, that was, I'm on Oh, okay. Well, it, 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 this was a study that was done some years ago, so maybe things have changed. But this was a study that the Able Foundation did several years ago. Yes. So my understanding of charter schools is that the charter was to free them from Right. To see what would work. Right. And then take those ideas and put them back into the public schools. Right. Was there evidence of that in work? You know, there for the longest time there was no collaboration, but in recent years there has been, and it's been mainly with the KIPP schools. Um, the the leader, the, the particular leadership team there is very committed to being, you know, collaborative and working with the community. So, um, you know, they they have like um, they. They, they had a, a special um, literacy program for the earliest learning, the kindergarten, first, second grade. And um, they had gotten it from the University of Chicago. It's called STEP. And they actually shared it with the district schools or the, those schools that wanted to use it. And then they even trained them in how to do it. So there's just been a lot that I've seen lately of this kind of cross-pollination. But it's not like the district sort of as an organization said, let's take this idea and put it in all the district schools. What happened was different principals went to this KIPP leader and said, I'm really interested in this, and they helped them with it. But it, it, you're right. I mean, this, is, this, this should be something that, and I, I actually, like this, this particular school I was telling you about that's figured out how to use resources to help really troubled kids get through school. I mean, why isn't that something that, the entire district is trying to figure out how to do and learning from them how they, you know, how did that principal figure out, you know, what positions she needed and what each person should do to support those kids. It, right, but I'm saying why wouldn't the district want to learn from them how they did that? Oh, you mean just to go to charters? Right. No, but it just you know. But but what's interesting is that when when they when they do something innovative that works, there ought to be there ought to be more of a systematic effort to draw on it, right? In the in the district schools. So. Okay. parent who recently had a child for two years in Baltimore City Public Schools, and I think 
there's huge problems around class and race in the city that have to be solved before we can solve kind of the wider public school issues, be it charters or public schools. Because there's even policies in the public school system that I think cause maybe some race and class issues. Like you have to move to another part of the city if you want your child to automatically go to one of the good schools. So I think a lot of people are forced with making those decisions, like I need to move somewhere else in the city or move out of the city to get my child a good pre-education, you know, because people end up in that point where they have to decide, like, can I actually go to my neighborhood school? Is that going to be a good enough school for my child, you know? And, I mean, and then you do have a charter, but there's still a lot of issues with um, the charters, like a lot of them do not have a good mix of different racial and class, um, people, you know, people from all over the spectrum, and I think it tends to drive out you know, you're not going to get people to continue, different types of people to continue to send their kids to schools that all have one demographic of people. They're not going to see a place for themselves in the school, and I think that's a real struggle. You have to build a school community. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it, it's unusual. And I, and I feel like a lot of my peers are moving to new neighborhoods or moving out of the city once they start having kids. And it's really disappointing to me because I've committed to stay in the city and, you know, try to keep my kids in public school, that we had to move to a, a different school, you know, a private school this year. So mm. it wasn't really our first choice, but it, I, I had an impossible time trying to go through the public school system to get moved to a different school. There was no option. But I know they're dealing with issues way bigger than what I'm dealing with, you know, families that are in way more desperate situations, so they're not going to look at, you know, people who have like a secure home life and food security and, and aren't dealing with poverty issues, and your issues aren't going to float to the top, and yet you need families like that to be in the public schools, you know, you, you don't want to push families with all the issues and but, you know, that's what's happened, basically. They're in the neighborhood schools, and those schools have to deal with all those issues, and no other kinds of people are going to go to those schools. So, I really think... Well, and have you followed the <clears throat> the stories that <coughs> were on This American Life about segregation and, and, and desegregation and the, you know, the effort to get kids from the inner city into suburban schools and vice versa? And it's just, you know... It's it's been very tough, but it also seems like right, right. Um, anyway, well, thank you. Yes. You know, I've read about it, but I haven't done any original reporting on it. So what do you think about that? I mean, I think last year was the first year at 70%. Yeah. So the teachers' unions, I understand, are no longer in the city. Um, I think it'll be a fascinating thing to watch. Certainly the idea that you can close down these schools that are underperforming rather than having them continue to you know, graduate for education seems seems promising to me, but I'm a I'm a Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't feel I don't really feel qualified to comment on it, so anyway. you know, over, over a period of time the terms magnet schools and charter schools, the definitions have changed. 
so that they're, they're so radically different. If I'm not mistaken, magnet schools were originally to desegregate populations. Yes. Yeah, and then charter schools were originally with the idea that you would take the real problems from the public schools, put them in charter schools, and you take the best teachers and put them in charter schools and solve those problems and then go back with it. So the question then becomes one, what happened to change this definition of charter schools to, to not contribute back to the public schools? Well, I think it was, I mean, that was um, Albert Shanker's idea of what charter schools should be. But um, I think that, you know, this just the last 20 years of charter schools and the philanthropy that's been behind them has seen them not as a laboratory, but as an, you know, an alternative system. And that's what they're trying to create. Thank you. Thank you.